0: This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next on Plains FM, the Shetland and Orkney Connection, brought to you by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society. Played by Shetland Band Homebrew Signal 8.30pm the last Monday each month For the Shetland and Orkney Connection Produced by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society And broadcast on Plains FM 96.9 Either directly in Canterbury or streaming live globally on broadband Or available for three months after the broadcast Via podcast on the website www.plainsfm.org.nz.
1: Welcome everybody to the last edition of the Shetland and Orkney Connection for 2022. It is presented by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and is promoted by Community Radio Plains FM 96.9. The programme is broadcast at 8.30pm on the last Monday of each month and is
0: repeated on Monday, two weeks later at noon. Jan is not with us today as she has COVID. We hope she'll be better in time for Christmas. Yes, it certainly would. Mm. And Heather, how are you now? We missed you last month.
1: Well, yes, hopefully I will be OK now as I'm taking medication, which if all goes to plan will stop the seizures. Main problem now is that I'm not allowed to drive for a year, which is not easy for me as I did enjoy driving. And thank you, Helen, for driving me here today and you will have to be my chauffeur for the next year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it won't be any problem. Yeah. <laughs> now, both Shetland and Orkney have had a dose of heavy snow this month. With roads and schools being closed, around 2,700 houses in Shetland did not have electricity for several days. The majority of faults were caused by line icing, a rare occurrence when, at certain temperatures, snow and ice stick to the power lines, and accumulates which adds significant weight to the lines, causing them to fall. Extensive damage had been caused to the overhead power lines and local teams have described the conditions as the worst they have seen in over 20 years.
1: Yes, they seem to have quite a bit in both Orkney and Shetland End and Scotland as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And now some snippets from the papers. The Isle of Valour is under offer according to the estate agent. On Shetland's west side, the island with a six-and-a-half-mile coastline and a 17th-century mansion has been on the market for almost six months. The property is owned by Richard Rowland and his wife and was put up for sale for offers of more than £1.75 million. Mr Rowland said, It's a remarkable island and the house was incredible. It has not been changed since the
0: early 1900s. Goodness. Goodness. I wonder how many people will go for it. Yeah, Mm. yeah.
1: Well, it's under office, so
0: yeah. Mm. All three investigations into the grounding of the MV Varigin have now concluded with the Orkney Islands Council saying that an isolated technical failure was to blame. On Friday, November the 9th, the 33-year-old vessel came to a sudden halt during her approach to the pier at Rapness. It was carrying 41 passengers and 10 crew. Luckily, no one was injured.
1: Mm. Now, some from Radio Orkney. An appeal has been launched to find the owners of three guinea pigs that were abandoned in Lerwick recently. The animals were found in a backpack on the corner of King Harkon Street and King Harold Street. Scottish SPCA said this was not an appropriate way to give up animals. They know people's circumstances change, but this was not the right way to give up animals. If you can no longer care for them. They are now in the care of the Scottish SPCA Animal Rescue and Rehoming Centre. And I do agree, dumping unwanted Unwanted animals is never okay under any circumstances. You know, take them
0: to the SPCA. Exactly. They They will take more, yes. you know,
1: cat's protection or whatever. Yes, there are places and they'll get
0: them. them promptly before they yeah. die. yeah. Mm. A big problem of island living is the cost of maintenance and replacing of the inter-island ferries and the upgrading of piers and harbours. A substantial itemised bill for replacing Orkney's ageing ferry fleet and infrastructure has been presented to the Deputy First Minister and Interim Finance Secretary John Swinney. The cost of replacing all of Orkney's current fleet plus an extra fourth vessel for the North Isles totals £238 million. Modernising the pier and harbour infrastructure has been calculated at another £156 million, add another 10% for inflation, and it all adds up to over £433 million. It's a lot of money. It sure it's is. Money. Isn't but it? I
1: said it's interesting because, um, you know, the Varrigan. Was mm. a technical thing, so whether it had anything to do with it being old, um, yeah. Mm. The council is presenting the bill with a hard-hitting letter highlighting the increasingly perilous and unacceptable state of the inter-island fleet. It asks how Scotland's smallest local authority could possibly borrow the money itself. It estimated the interest alone would cost the council twenty-eight and a half million pounds every year for twenty-five years. Mm. The Deputy First Minister has a long list of financial demands to account for when he sets the Scottish budget in Holyrood. If replacing Orkney's ferries is not one of them, the Island Council says it will have no option but to press the Westminster Government for the money. And I know they are still working on it. Um, yeah, but. Yes. You know, they don't want any more um, ferries breaking down, no. particularly if the weather's rough or anything. Exactly. You know? It'd be terrible. Yeah. yeah.
0: Orkney Island's Council wish it to be known that it accepts no liability whatsoever in respect of any claim for damage or loss or injury to person or property, howsoever arising from any person in respect of the event known as the bar, held annually in Kirkwall at Christmas and New Year. For the avoidance of doubt, persons participate in the bar whether as players or spectators, entirely at their own risk. <laughs> yeah,
1: and I yes. do know that some of the businesses do put um, covers over the windows. Right. You know, right. their businesses. Um, yes. They, you know, to, to yes. save against damage. So, yes. Because yeah. it can get quite boisterous at times. Yeah.
0: And is that a bit similar to the Irish game where they whack a ball? No, no, the, no. There's is, nothing. This is, is just, this the ball just, just throwing and the ball. It's,
1: yeah, it's just Something. like a
0: scrum in a. Oh, football, it's really, yeah. Oh,
1: right. But my daughter went and saw it. And she, all she could see was. Um, Legs, steam, no, and steam <laughs> raising off it because, you know, it's cold. It's at winter. <laughs> yeah, it's the middle of winter, yeah. How gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, so this was an interesting ad from a few years ago, and it would have been a few years ago. The Orkney Islands, mainly agricultural, population 32,000. The Shetland Islands, mostly fisheries, population 30,000. Being a general dealer here at both capitals, with connections all over the islands, can I further your interest here in any way, either by buying from you or selling to you. We ship here all kinds of fish, including trout, winkles and lobsters. Also potatoes, turnips, oats and beer meal. Hand-knit goods in variety, horses, cattle, sheep, pigs, rabbits and fowls and eggs. Can I sell your specialities? And this may be had from W. Strong, Ewinson, Kirkwall and Lurwick. I found found that was quite interesting because um, it was just a wee brochure and I think it cost you threepence. So, Right. uh, But with the population of being 30 and 32,000, they haven't been that for quite a while actually. Oh. Because I think they're only over 20 at the moment. Oh, right. um, Yes. And the beer meal is B E R E, not B E E R uh, or, or B-E-A-R. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, Christmas one hundred years ago. Geese are selling retail in Kirkwall at present at sixpence halfpenny and sevenpence per pound. This is the highest price that we remember ever having been charged here. The reason given is the scarcity of this class of fowl, and necessity of breeders recouping themselves to meet extra charges, made upon them by the Insurance Act. Mm. I wonder, do they still eat goose for Christmas dinner? I know they have an overabundance of wild Canada geese at times in Orkney, where they make an awful mess of the pasture, do they ever eat these Canada geese? I don't know, no. but I know they're a real pest. Yes, and they're a very big bird, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. You think they get a few feet, f- feet of them.
1: But I, like, you know, they're saying about geese, but I can't sort of ever remember geese being bred, right? Anywhere, you know, yes. in, the, in the islands. But yes, yeah. mm. interesting to know whether they do mm. eat those Canada geese. Yeah, they might be a bit tough. <laughs> 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 now, Edward Muir, poet, translator, prolific essayist critic and novelist from 1887 to 1959, was born the son of a tenant farmer in DNS in Orkney's East Mainland, and spent his early years on the Orkney island of Wire. At the age of 14, he was uprooted to endure the culture shock of industrial Glasgow. The upheaval saw his parents and two brothers die within five years. He married Shetland born writer Willa Anderson, and the couple translated 40 novels from German and Czech. And that interested me because mm. did they know those languages? Must, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Including Franz Kafka's The Trial. Muir was director of the British Council in Prague and later Rome. After many years travelling in Europe, in 1950, he became warden of New Battle Abbey College in Midlothian where he encouraged fellow Orcadian writer George Mackay Brown. Muir produced poetry from his mid-thirties, for which he was internationally acclaimed. And I did look up some of his poems on the internet, but I found them a bit hard to understand. (laughs) Maybe I'm just dumb, but no, they they weren't my cup of tea Right,
0: yes. Were they in the dialect?
1: No, they weren't, weren't. but they, yeah, because I thought I might have one to read you know but
0: oh oh no yeah
1: (laughs) right now these are golden memories of harvest time by Pat Long and this was published in the Living Orkney magazine in October 2010 and I read this article with interest as it brought back memories to me of harvest time in the 1950s when we lived on a farm in North Otago after the wheat had been cut using a binder similar to the ones used in Orkney and the sheaves stooped. It was always a great day when the thrashing machine arrived, being pulled along by a steam and smoke belching traction engine. A bit of a scary thing for us kids. After the stooks had been put in the thrashing machine, the grain went into sacks, and the straw was blown out the back of the machine into a pile. As kids we would lie on the pile and wait to be covered with the straw. Now it's all done with combine harvesters, and all the friendship and camaraderie has been lost. But there is not all the hard work involved now, though, which is possibly a good thing, because, you yes. know, it was
0: a hard work. Yeah, That's right, especially when it was very, very hot. Yes. <laughs> yes. Pat wrote, Anne, John, and I always enjoyed listening to our mother, Kathleen Leach's stories of growing up in wartime Stromness, but I can remember wondering what on earth I would find to tell my children about my uneventful childhood. It naturally didn't cross my mind that so many of the things I took for granted were about to disappear and that I'd be able to entertain them with tales of threshing oats, watering kai, hinting tatties, cooking on a peat stove and having only one TV channel to watch. Only one of my four children shows any interest and I suspect him of politely faking it but I don't usually let it stop me. They sensibly give no sign of being sorry to have missed any of these activities but they were unlucky to have missed the harvest. We played hide and seek around the stooks in the twilight built dens of sheaves and skipped with the cart ropes and even when we were old enough to work in the harvest field, we mostly enjoyed it. We may be the last generation to look back with nostalgia.
1: Yeah. Summers and Winters in the Orkneys, published in 1881, journalist Daniel Gorey wrote, Scythes and reaping machines and the march of agricultural improvement have well nigh succeeded in Orkney as elsewhere in scaring away the romance, mirth and lovemaking of other times from the harvest fields. Happy the young men and maidens in farms remote who can yet shoulder the sickle and buckle to their work in company of the same rig.
0: Mm-hmm. J.T. Leask, Pat's great-granduncle, grew up on the farm of Coldomo in Stennis and had a more accurate idea of what it was like bending all day to cut with a sickle. In one of the dialect chapters in his book, A Peculiar People, he wrote boy, boy, it was coarse, coarse work, and sour, sour, apple de back. I've only seen the scythe used to cut roads into the field for the binder. To save wasting the oats, the tractor would otherwise flatten. But in the 19th century, three or four men with scythes would cut the entire crop. Women would work with them, gathering the cut oats into sheaves. Competitions between the couples to see who could reach the end of the row first were popular, and heartily encouraged by the farmer. In comparison to the hooke, the speed of the scythe was astonishing. And the first man to use one in Stromness was said to have drawn a crowd like a market.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's quite fascinating watching them, mm. though. Yes. Know, yeah. Yes. When they get into the rhythm and that. Exactly. So, yeah. But I wouldn't like to do it all day, though. <laughs> no, no. There was a knack to sharpening the scythe's long blade, and there was a farmer in Strumness who hadn't acquired it, but he was a powerful man and used his brute strength to drive the blunt blade through the oats. A neighbour noticed this and helpfully honed the scythe to a fine edge one night, under cover of darkness, and out without telling the owner. His plan worked perfectly, the next day, the owner took his usual hefty swipe at the oats and is said to have spun round twice before he could stop. Yeah. But dangerous, really. He could yeah, have taken yeah, somebody's yeah. leg off. Yeah.
0: Oh, dear. By the turn of the last century, the oats were cut with a binder. In one summer, it was my job to perch on the seat high up on the back of the machine and try to keep the whole thing operating as Dad towed it with our little grey Fergie tractor. To the left, the teeth of the binder mowed down the stalks of the oats, as the wooden sails knocked them backwards onto the wide canvas belt that carried them up and over to the other side of the machine. One of the levers under my control could raise or lower the cutting edge, so I had to keep an eye on this. Meanwhile, the oats were gathered into a bundle, The binder twine was round around it, knotted and cut, and the sheaf dropped off.
1: It was quite a, um, Mm. you know, my father used a binder, same Mm. as this, and, yeah, it was quite a fascinating machine, Mm. actually, yeah. When the binder was first demonstrated in Stennis, one of the farmers examined a sheaf and pronounced, it's the devil's work, as no machine could tie a knot. Our binder only tied knots fitfully, so I was supposed to keep a close eye on what was being dropped off. More than once I was so busy watching the cutting edge that several loose bundles were dropped onto the stubble before I noticed. When this happened, my father, Peter, would simply take a few stalks out of the bundle, wind them around the rest and tie them into a knot, as every generation had done before him. Once the whole field was cut and tied in more or less tidy sheaves, they had to be stooped, leant against each other in pairs, three pairs standing in a line, forming a stoop, and the stooks marched in line down
0: the field. Of course, the weather was always sunny in the harvests, I remember, but my parents tell this wasn't actually the case. Farmers admiring their slowly ripening crop feared an early autumn gale, which in a few hours could turn a fine upstanding crop into something closely resembling a storm at sea. Oats grew much higher than barley, making a flattened crop harder to deal with. Stooks might also have to be re-erected more than once, which was especially enjoyable when the sheaves were wet. (laughs) I'm sure it was enjoyable, (laughs) (laughs) From biblical times and probably earlier, women have worked in the harvest field alongside the men. I'm sure mum isn't the only retired farmer's wife who remembers her husband kindly allowing her to go home several minutes early. This was so she could rustle up dinner or tea for all the workers. (laughs) She'd been up half the night before they did really as well. Had
1: had to cook things for morning and afternoon
0: tea, you know, know. the night before. Incredible. Yeah. No popping down to the supermarket. And
1: it was an old peat stove and they weren't very big, you know. I'm just thinking of the one that was in my grandmother's house. It was only, you know, a couple of feet square. Yes, amazing, isn't it? yeah. I don't know how they did it. Catering wasn't as elaborate as for peat cutting, but was complicated by the unpredictable numbers. Invitations were issued to a peat cutting, but harvests were more of an open house. Friends and neighbours would just come along when they saw help was needed. Mum's record was 12 for dinner and 15 for tea. The meal was cooked on a peat stove, which died down while everyone was out in the field. On the way back to the house one afternoon, Mum noticed some bits of an old hen house with tarry felt roofing still attached, which she thought would be handy for getting the fire going. She shoved it all in, set the chimney on fire and (laughs) carried on making tea. As she did, yeah. (laughs) Almost as important was the afternoon tea break. Many years on, the taste of rhubarb jam in an Argo's role can still transport me back to the harvest field. In the middle of the afternoon, the brown enamel teapot was wrestled from my grandfather, who despite a heart weakened by trench fever and WW1, lived to a cheerful old age, sustained by a continuous supply of tea and ginger snaps. The filled teapot was wrapped in a towel, tucked securely into a galvanised milking pail and sent out to the field with a basket full of cups, milk, jam-filled rolls and home baking. The baking had been done after everyone had gone home the night before. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah.
0: No farm had a barn big enough to hold a winter's supply of straw and the cartloads of sheaves would be taken to the stack yard. Building the stack was a skilled job as they had to withstand the winter weather until the sheaves were taken to the barn and threshed. The perfect stack sloped gently out from the base for about half its height and then had a conical top half. We were just happy to get our stacks wind and water tight, but there were hard-fought stack-building competitions in the 1930s and there are pictures of rows of perfectly built Absolutely identical stacks, trimly wrapped in fathoms of Simmons, mm. which is straw, straw ropes. Yeah, yes. yeah, I've Hold seen the, them all together. Yeah, yes. I've
1: seen the um, stacks, and they do, you know, when you mm. get a row of them, they are quite yes. pretty to look at. Yeah, yes. very interesting. Yeah, yes, yeah. Although my literally golden memories of the harvest field are those of a child. Even my parents' generation, who dealt with the hard work and bad weather, mainly remembered the fun and friendship and the satisfaction of another harvest safely in. Mm -hmm. Now, the track that we're going to play now is a track from the Selkies CD, Gone With The Flow. Well, we have come to the end of another programme and also the end of another year. We would like to wish you all a lovely Christmas and a Happy New Year. Cheerio until next year. Yes.
0: Keep well and safe over the holidays.
2: Mm-mm.